Good morning. So this does feel really strange to be, after what our church has walked through in the last week, last six years, but especially the last week, with Pastor Gary uh, passing away on Monday, um, it just feels really strange to be just like, well, here we go, here's Sunday morning, and then here's Wednesday night, and it just feels, it just feels out of place. And so um, I am going to talk about uh, Pastor Gary, but I'm going to do it at the end, because if I do it at the beginning, I won't make it through the sermon. So we'll save some of that towards the end. So um, this will all kind of tie together, as you'll see. But we are starting a brand new series today called Life Upside Down. And this is coming from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. The most famous sermon Jesus ever preached was probably the Sermon on the Mount. Would you agree with that? So we're going to do a a whole series on this sermon that he preached in Matthew 5 through 7. And then we're going to pick it up after the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to pick up Matthew 8 through 10. And we're going to call that series Life Inside Out. So we're doing Life Upside Down and then Life Inside Out. Because you see these nine different stories in Matthew 8 through 10 of people's lives being changed. And not just externally through miracles, but internally Jesus changes them. So that'll be the plan for the next few months. Now there are many famous sayings in the Sermon on the Mount. You may have heard of some of these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may have heard, you are the salt of the earth. Judge not that you be not judged. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. These are all coffee cup verses, right? The Lord's Prayer is in this sermon. We're going to hear Jesus talk about anger, lust, marriage, revenge, anxiety. There is so much in this sermon that will like meet you in your day-to-day life. Like you'll, I think you'll love when you really get into this, into this message of the Sermon on the Mount. In a minute, we're going to watch a video that shows, it's like an, an animation that shows how this sermon fits in with the first half of Matthew. So the video is going to be an animation and give you an overview, kind of a flyover picture of the book of Matthew, at least Matthew 1 through 13, I believe. And it'll also show you how the sermon fits into the book. So we're going to watch this in a moment. Before we do that, though, I want you to see, I've got some questions that I want you to be thinking about as you watch the video. Here's the questions. What stood out to you, or what did you learn that was new? What did you learn about the Sermon on the Mount? And what thoughts do you have about how the sermon fits in with the rest of the book? So keep those questions in mind as you watch the video, and you're going to discuss those questions when the video's over. Let's go ahead and watch the video. Okay, let's pick up with, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Turn to Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25. And... I want to show you what Jesus was doing right before he went into preaching the Sermon on the Mount. So before we get to Matthew 5, look at Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. 
And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus goes from town to town, announcing the kingdom, and he's healing people. And this is obviously creating a crowd, as you might imagine. Now, there in this crowd, there are genuine disciples, but there are also people who just want to see a show. Now, watch what Jesus does as you look at Matthew 5, the first. We're only going to cover this as setup verses for the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. So watch what Jesus does as this crowd is surrounding him in Matthew 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. So right here, Jesus does something that we don't really expect. Because when it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, he was trying to move away from the crowds. And, of course, the the disciples follow him. And this is not just his 12. This is uh, other people as well that would consider themselves followers of his. And this crowd ends up following him. So he's been preaching, he's been healing people, and as you'll see in a lot of the Gospels, um, apparently healing people can tire somebody out. So Jesus moves away from crowds and goes to be more isolated, but the crowds often follow him. And I think what you see from this is throughout his ministry, we see that Jesus wants more than just crowds. He wants disciples. He wants people that really want to follow him. So a disciple is someone who's a learner and someone who truly wants to know and truly wants to follow him and not just wanting to see a show. So you have his disciples and then you have the crowds that are there to see what's the next thing he's going to do. So his audience is really two kinds of people. You got the disciples and you have the crowds. And you've got this mix of people that are going to hear the Sermon on the Mount. But the primary audience that he's speaking to would be his disciples. And again, not just the the ones you think of as the twelve, but these are anyone that consider themselves a follower of his. I think in the church today, we have, of course, the same mix of people. We have the true disciples. We have what I would call false disciples, people who think they are disciples but are not. And we also have crowds. These are people who are not yet believers, but they don't really pretend to be either. They're just there wanting to see what it's all about. And this is what is happening here in the story. I think last week I told you that on the, in the survey that we do in the springtime, one out of seven of you in this room would say, that you're not really a believer. And like I said last week, I love that you're honest about that, and I love that you're still in here. And it's also a challenge to the rest of the room to know that everyone in this room is not like you. So be careful how you speak. Be careful to to not assume that everyone in here is a believer, if you consider yourself a believer. We want this place to be the most hospitable place it can be for someone who is not yet a follower of Christ. Now, what I mean by that, I don't mean that we're not going to rock the boat or that we're not going to speak truth, but when it comes to you relating to people, 
and how you act towards people, you've got to remember that everyone in this room doesn't think like you think. And if we want to be a people that are going to invite them in to a walk with Christ, we've got to be people of hospitality. We're also going to be people of truth, of course, and we're going to speak truth, but to do it in a loving way and to act in a loving way. This is the challenge, I think, for the church. We're going to have disciples, we're going to have false disciples, and we're going to have crowds. And the same thing happens today. We've got to make sure we understand that if someone is seeking, and they truly are seeking truth, then this needs to be the most hospitable place for them to be. I want this place to be, for an unbeliever who's really seeking truth, I want this place to be more hospitable than anywhere out there in the world for them. Where they find that in here, there's just something different. And even if I don't agree with what some of these people say they believe, that I I feel like I want to learn more, I want to know more because of the lives I'm seeing lived out in the body of Christ in here. That's what I would want to see happen in this place. So the message of the Sermon on the Mount, what's the message? It is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that concept, repentance, is one that we don't like to talk about a whole lot. So what is repentance? Well, this comes from a, an old Greek word, which is metanoia, or it's where we get the word metamorphosis from. And if I can picture it this way, let me explain this to you. How many of you all have been to Washington, D.C., and seeing the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Raise your hand. You've been to that part of the country. So only a handful of you. Um, I'm from that area, and I just saw this last year. And it was by chance because we were on an airline flight, got delayed. We were actually stayed overnight in D.C., close to where I'm from. And we decided to take a little trip into the cemetery and see a place I'd never seen before. Because, I mean, who does stuff like that when you live there, right? You don't do the touristy stuff when you live there. So that's how we didn't do that. So we finally go, take my kids to see it. And there's a tomb of the unknown soldier. And in front of the tomb, there is always a what? A guard. And that guard is 24-7. That guard is pacing up and down. And they do shifts, of course. And you can see that there is a, there is like a path worn on the stone that's there. Because someone's always walking back and forth, back and forth in front of that tomb. And so what the guy will do, he will walk this way several feet. Then he does what is called a what? An about face, a turn, right? He turns and he goes the other direction. He turns again and he goes back and forth for probably a half hour or an hour. And so this about face, this is what repentance is. So someone's walking in this direction. And then they do an about face, and they turn, and they are going in the other direction. This is a picture of repentance, a change, a change in mind and a change in direction. So repentance is not just some, like, theoretical abstract thing. Like, you know, yeah, in my mind, I just saw, I came to see that what I was doing was wrong. But this is a, you're walking in this direction in your life. And you do an about face and you turn, and you turn towards Christ. And you're now walking in a direction that's following Christ. 
So it's not just an idea. It actually affects your life in a real way. I think you saw that pretty plainly whenever we had our team share life stories this summer. You could notice in in every person's story there was this reality of, of a turning. And for some it may have been a process, but for every single one of us there was a point in time in our life where we realized I'm walking in this direction and I want to turn other direction. I want to follow Jesus. And that's a picture of repentance. And every testimony, every person who's currently a Christian should have some kind of story of, of life change, transformation. And not just a mind thing, but a heart thing and a life, life change. It's what repentance is. We've talked about it here at the church a lot. We call it surrender. And this is all part of what surrender is. It's repentance. And I think what concerns me sometimes in, in high school ministry is that some of you, some, sometimes what can happen is you just start hanging around the church and maybe you like the people, maybe you like some of our leaders, maybe you just like free food. I don't know. But you, in your mind, you might start thinking that, well, hanging around here, well, that makes me a Christian. And hanging around the church does not make someone a Christian. Just like being part of the crowds did not make someone a disciple. And after someone's been around here for a while, they might begin to identify as a Christian. And what really concerns me at times is when I ask people, hey, tell us what it means to be a Christian, or how do you start following Jesus? And I'll hear things like, well, I went through, I went through this bad breakup, and Jesus was, he was there for me. Or, I struggle with anxiety, and Jesus, he helped me. Or, I wasn't doing so well in school, and, you know, I started praying for help in school, and and Jesus, he helped me. And that sounds nice. And I'm not saying that, that God can't help you with some of those things in your life, but the beginning of a relationship with Jesus always starts with surrender and repentance and a recognition of your sin, and that sin separates you from this holy God, and that you need Jesus in your life in a real way to save you from your sin. And so I always get really concerned when I hear, when I ask students, hey, tell me your testimony, tell me how you began following Jesus, and it just seems like we see Jesus as this good luck charm. Like he's just there to help me out with certain trials in my life. And he is there to help you with those trials in your life. But the genesis of your testimony should always be surrender and repentance. And this is what transfers someone from being someone who's just in the crowd to someone who is a disciple. You don't become, go from crowd to disciple by just hanging around the disciples This needs to be a personal thing between you and God, that you place your faith and trust in him for salvation. That's what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. So in this this sermon, Jesus announces this arrival of this kingdom. And so we all have a choice. We can see him as a king, and we can surrender to him, or we continue walking in that pathway of rebellion 
and seeing ourselves on the throne and idolatry. And this is what repentance is turning away from that and turning towards him. And so Jesus being a king is not just some abstract idea. If he is, if he is king over your life, it's going to affect your life in some real, tangible ways. So I want to encourage you. I don't, I don't have time to do all this this morning, but I want to get to what I was speaking about before. But if you're not sure where you stand with Christ today, I would love for you to come and talk with me or talk to a leader this morning and just say, hey, what we're talking about this morning, I, I feel like maybe I'm just in the crowd, like I don't really know him. Or maybe you would recognize, like, I'm a false disciple. I'm pretending to be one, but I'm not really a disciple of his. I would love for you to come and talk with me or talk to a leader in this room this morning about what it means to follow Jesus. And that maybe today is the day that you come to know Christ as your Savior. Maybe today is the day where you put your faith and trust in his finished work on the cross for you for salvation. And you recognize that I don't want to be someone who's just part of a crowd I want to be a disciple. I want to see my life changed for the sake of Christ. And if that's you this morning, I would love for you to come and talk with me or one of our leaders today about how to take that step of faith. So in this sermon, Jesus shows us what a surrendered life looks like, living in the reality of his presence and having the power of Christ living with you in your everyday life. That's an amazing thing. And I think it's so fitting that we're starting this series today because as you saw on the video a while ago, Jesus spent time performing miracles, healing, he's teaching in chapter 4, and then he he announces his kingdom in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And we see in this part of Matthew, Jesus is, he is king, he reigns over evil, He reigns over disease. He reigns over death. He's king over all of it. And what a week for us to reflect on that. So I want to talk to you about our pastor and friend, Gary DeSalvo. If you're new here, don't know what we're talking about, our founding pastor, who's been here for 38 years, got... Uh, eye cancer about six years ago, and it's a serious disease, and he, cancer spread, and he, um, he passed away on Monday. And we're grateful that he had six years, six and a half years, because none of us thought he would get that. Never forget the first time he told us he got the diagnosis, and he already knew how serious it was the day he got the diagnosis. And he called it an emergency staff meeting. And we all met. And we were like, what's up? Because this is not a normal thing. And his wife is standing there, and he tells us the news through tears. And now we're all in tears. And he told us in that first meeting, there's an 80% chance that I'm not here in five years. And so the gravity of all that just hit us like a wall, and we're just disoriented for weeks and months, just like he was. And then we kind of gain our footing back, and we realize, okay, we're, this is the new reality. And it was obviously really tough. The whole six and a half years was really tough. 
was something Gary shared with us over and over again. We went to go see him in the hospital last Tuesday, a couple of Tuesdays ago. And we thought he had several weeks left, and so did he. And he said, there's a guy named William Carey who's a, who was a missionary, a famous missionary. And he said, William Carey once said, you all are speaking a lot about William Carey. When I'm gone, do not speak about William Carey. Speak only about William Carey's Savior. And he said, that's my hope and desire for you guys with me. We walked out of that room, and I would never talk to him again. That was the last time I saw him where he could converse. Yesterday, Tim Cartwright and I officiated the graveside service for Gary DeSalvo. And one of the things that I shared at that service, I'll share with you here, the two words that come to mind with Gary DeSalvo were generous leadership. He was a generous leader. He was not someone who would micromanage everything. Like we had this, uh, this guy a long time ago that came and visited with our team, and the guy had us take this personality test. And I know a lot of you guys don't know Gary real personally, but we on staff know him really well. And Gary's really OCD. He's one of the most detailed guys you'll ever meet. And this, this guy, this consultant, had us all take a personality test, and he was going to look at our team and see our scores and see how we fit together. And he looked at Gary's test, and he said, wait, so how, how big is your church again? And one of the guys told him, and he just said, I have never seen a church. And this guy talks to hundreds of pastors. I've never seen a church have never seen a pastor with Gary's personality type have a church as big as Temple Bible Church. And we said, well, what are you talking about? Why, why are you saying that? And he said, because Gary has the personality profile of a micromanager, someone who wants to get their hands in all the details. And he said, what it tells me is that Gary is a really generous leader, that he's a man of character, and that he operates out of his character, and he delegates things well. Even though he doesn't want to, he delegates things well and releases them, and he trusts his leaders. He said, I've never seen a church that big with a pastor with that profile, ever. So Gary was this generous leader and would let us lead and empower us to lead. He ministered in some pretty incredible ways during his illness, As many of you all know, I saw him do funerals when he knew that his own funeral could be a few months away, and he ministered out of that and did it so well. I I loved watching him whenever he sit with a grieving family. I loved learning from him as he knew just what to say and how to say it as he walked him through those, those tough, tough days when he had his own tough, tough days. This is a card. The other day, I was in the church office, and somebody had sent 
purple and gold flowers to the church office. Anybody know why they're purple and gold? LSU. Nobody said UMHB because you know better. Purple and gold means LSU. So somebody sent the church office purple and gold flowers. And I saw them sitting on the desk in the copy room. I didn't think much about it. thought someone sent us flowers. That's nice. Then I realized who sent them. And I went in there and I saw this card in front of the flowers. And it looked like Gary's handwriting. And I realized I know who sent those flowers. Gary sent those flowers. Gary... He prearranged that when he passed away, that the church would get flowers from him. And he had this card. And he wrote all of our names on it. He sent us a card before he passed, and he had it prearranged. And he wrote this card in the voice as if he was writing it from heaven. And what's weird is he he says some funny things in this card. He says, don't worry about your pastor as you cannot believe how awesome it is here with Jesus in heaven. He says, mom and I are catching up and we can't believe how good each other looks. He goes, she's a petite size now and I have a 34-inch waist, but I still have my guns. He says, I believe in each of you. And I know that you'll advance God's kingdom. And I just thought, like, who does that? Who does things like that? And if our staff, we would realize in the last six and a half years, Gary would, of course he was sad. Of course he would cry. Of course he would get emotional like we all would. But there was like this playfulness that he had as he talked about death, which made the rest of us feel uncomfortable. But I think he could do that because he knew that death had lost its sting. And he knew that. And he lived that out. So if you think I'm emotional now, just wait. So I told you that I saw him on Tuesday. I guess it's now, I don't, I don't know, I lost track of days. I don't know, is today Sunday? What is today? Today's Sunday. We went up there on a Tuesday to see him in the hospital. We could talk to him. He was sitting in a chair. He was in pain, but he could converse with us. And so the staff 
Didn't have a chance to go see him after that, really. And then the Sunday after our baptism service, the staff were supposed to take our wives up there and go see him one last time in his hospital room. At this point, he's pretty much sedated and can't even know we're there. But just to be with the family, we're supposed to go see him on Sunday after baptism. Well, we texted the family, and they said, hey, you know what? We're exhausted today, so let's just wait. And so we didn't go on Sunday. So Monday rolls around, and I get a text message around 4 o'clock saying, if you guys want to meet and come up today on Monday, that'd be great. The family would love to see you guys on Monday. So we decide. They said, Mark, bring your guitar. Mark Rojas, our worship pastor. So we decided to meet up there at 545. We were talking about we're going to go at 5, 6, 7. We're not even sure what time we're going to go. We decided within the hour of us going what time we were going to go. So we meet at 545 in the lobby of the hospital, most of our spouses and all the staff. We go up to the floor that he's on, and, and we go to his room, and his daughter and his son come out, and they say to us, we want you guys to come in. Obviously, he's not really even conscious. He's breathing on his own, but he doesn't know you're here. He's, a, he's sedated. But we appreciate y'all coming in here today. We want y'all to sing and pray with us in the room. And his daughter said this, we're hoping that this sends him to glory. And so we go into the room, and, and I will tell you that it was very difficult seeing him in the state that he was in. But he was unaware that we were even there. But you could see him breathing on his own, and he's, there's no machines attached. He's breathing on his own. He's still living. And so we come in there and we start praying and singing and crying and we're all just a mess. I will tell you, though, that there was a joy in that room from his wife and his kids that was, we know where he's going. And so we're praying and we're singing, we're praying and we're singing. And then Frank DeSalvo, who's Gary's dad, is sitting there and he starts telling this story about how Gary got called into ministry. You see, Gary wanted to be a doctor. And he's telling us the story of how Gary told his dad that he wanted to go be a preacher. And so as he's telling us this story, we notice that I look at Gary, and I'm recognizing that his breathing isn't what it was when we first walked into that room. And within a moment, he let out a little gasp, and he passed away right in front of us. And all of us are sitting here thinking, this just happened. Like what his daughter said she wanted us to do is what happened. He was in the hospital for over a week. We were supposed to go on Sunday. We were supposed to go at 5, 6, or 7 o'clock. We didn't know the time we are going to go. And then the time we landed on, God gave us 25 minutes of praying and singing with our pastor while his wife was holding up his hands in worship 
because he couldn't do it himself. And he passed away right in front of us. And I'll tell you, the room, of course, is full of tears and we're sad. But at the same time, we walked out thinking we'd just seen a miracle. I know death doesn't sound like a miracle. But man, this one sure did. I mean, the moment where people are praying and singing him to glory. And so I will never forget Monday, August 26, at 6.56 p.m. I will never forget that day for as long as I live. Because that was a gift from God to us, I think. That he allowed us to be a part of that with that family. So I wanted to share that with you to encourage you, to let you know that, listen, Gary is in good hands. He's in better hands than if he was in our hands. And so I praise God for that, and I thank God for that. And so listen, I'm going to pray. And like I said to you all ago, if you're someone that wants to talk to someone this morning about just what's it mean to follow Jesus. I want to become a Christian today. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of our leaders. We invite you to come and, and, and start following and become a disciple of Jesus today. If God's stirring and moving in your heart this morning. So listen, I know we're all a mess in here right now. I'm going to pray, and if you would like to, You guys can do some discussion questions if you want. But if you need to come and talk with someone, please come talk with someone. If you need to leave, then you can obviously head out. Let's go ahead and pray together. God, we thank you. We praise you for the gift of life. But we know this physical life only points us to a greater life, which is eternal life with you. We thank you that you give us the gift of life physically, but also eternally. God, I pray that if anyone in this room doesn't know you, hasn't surrendered their life to you yet, I pray that that would happen today. I pray they would turn to you in repentance and turn to you in surrender and come to know you today, Father, and truly be united with you. We pray that for these students. We pray for us as leaders. We lead these students in discipleship. We pray that you give us wisdom and help us to lead them well. We pray this in your name. Amen.